Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Friday, the 18th of February, 2022. This is Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge. Uh, the producer for this program is Paul Perot. You don't often hear him, but sometimes you do. I, Good morning, Paul. I kind of jump in like this. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Hi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Paul's the one that makes all the music magic happen. So every um, every time you think I mean, to I yourself. I find music. You know, I, I don't actually do the music. You probably don't want me to. <laughs> no, but you push all the right buttons, and we're uh, grateful for you. Okay. So, thanks, Paul. You're welcome. So, we are um, reading through the Bible, uh, and so we find ourselves today on this 18th day of February in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. And it's not too late to join us in this. You can do so at MyFaithRadio.com. Hundreds of people are reading through the book of Acts with us during this month of February. I hope you're one of them. So here we are today, uh, and here is what Acts chapter 18 says. After this, Paul left Athens, which if you missed chapter 17, please go back and read it. It's one of the most exciting, fantastic chapters Uh, In the Bible, of course, I also said that about Acts 15 and earlier chapters as well. So there you go. Don't miss any of them. If you want to understand the groundwork for how the gospel actually has advanced over the course of human history, particularly in the earliest of days, this is where you discover that information. So yesterday, Paul was in Athens. Today, he's in Corinth. And you say to yourself, hey, that sounds familiar. I know a couple of books of the Bible that um, are written to the church in Corinth, First and Second Corinthians. We had that same conversation when um, there was reference in the book of Acts to Paul's trip to Thessalonica. All right, we're also going to read in this chapter that he makes his way to a town called Ephesus. And yep, you're saying to yourself, hey, I know a book called Ephesians. There's also reference in here to Timothy, which, uh, yeah, you recognize as the person to whom Paul writes first and second Timothy. So you're going to understand all of Scripture better um, and the interconnected relationships of these people if you read the book of Acts. So there you go. There's my encouragement to jump in with us. Um, You are going to uh, read here in Acts chapter 18, um, about some other characters as well who figure largely in terms of Paul's support in his missionary efforts and people who support him um, ultimately when he's in Rome. So here you go. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So if you want a little uh, forecasting and foreshadowing of what's ultimately going to take place when Paul finds himself 
in Rome, Priscilla and Aquila meeting them here in Acts chapter 18 is significant to that storyline. Uh, he went to see them because he was of the same trade, which means they were also tent makers, and he stayed with them and he worked. Oh, here's where it says they were tent makers by trade. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So this goes on. He returns uh, to Antioch. There is uh, a conversation about what is taking place in the city of Ephesus, which is a foreshadowing of um, of Paul's actually long, fairly long-term ministry in the city of Ephesus, and one of my favorite books of the Bible, which is uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Steve West joins us next. He is the editor of the Liberties Roundup at World Magazine. Um, there's a number of headlines about uh, you know the intersection of the law and religious liberty. Um, And so it's guaranteed in the Constitution, but it's not always respected in the same way by everyone. So we're going to have our Liberties Roundup on this Friday morning with Steve West. That's next here on Mornings with Carmen. Steve West joins us now, among other things. He's the editor of the Liberties Roundup for World Magazine. You can read what we're talking about today at WNG. That stands for World News Group, WNG.org. Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Can I ask you a lawyer question before we jump into all these uh, other conversations? You sure can. Go ahead. Okay. So um, I've been hearing... I've been hearing a lot uh, in the last, let's say, 24 hours about the possibility of someone pleading the fifth, taking the fifth. Um, can you just remind us what that means so when we hear it in the you know, news parlance of the next few days, we'll know what they're talking about? Right. They're for referring to the Fifth Amendment uh, to the Constitution, which basically says that you have the right not to incriminate yourself. So if you're charged with a crime, you don't have to take the stand and give any testimony at all. Uh, the prosecutor's burden is to show by uh, show by re- beyond a reasonable doubt that you are guilty and you don't have to take the stand. Because, of course, if you take the stand, your statements could incriminate you. You don't have to do that. Uh, that's, a, that's a constitutional guarantee that we have. All right. So thank you. I appreciate I appreciate that. Um, Let's talk about religious assemblies in public schools. I am, you know, very aware that there are programs in public schools, including, um, you know, Bible teaching programs. There are uh, gospel after school clubs. There are good news clubs. There's lots of things that take place in public schools that are related to not only Christianity but other religions as well. Tell us what's going on in terms of religious assemblies in public schools and why this makes the Liberties Roundup this week. Right. Uh, well, this came up this week uh, because uh, a ca- in a case in Huntington, West Virginia, there was a headline from AP News where you know more than 100 students at this West Virginia high school staged a homeroom walkout last week to protest what they thought was an inappropriate Christian assembly at their school. But it really, I think, is based on a misunderstanding of what can occur at school. So these students were chanting uh, slogans like separation of church and state, which is really not something that you find in the Constitution, although there is something called the Establishment Clause that prevents the state from establishing a religion or supporting a religion. So what it comes down to is 
that there was a uh, there was a an assembly in this school during a non-instructional time. It was sponsored by the school's chapter of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, a group that many uh, listeners will probably be aware of. They do a lot of good work, and so there was an, they invited an evangelist to come in during this time. It was a voluntary time, so this was a a time period when students could study for tests, work on college prep. Or if they wanted to, it was purely voluntary, they could go and listen to a guest speaker. And so that's what was happening this day. The only thing that became a problem was that there were a couple of teachers who apparently, mistakenly, brought their whole class to the assembly. And that's where the problem began. Not sure if the teachers, not sure yet if the teachers just believed that it was mandatory or something else was going on. But some of these students complained, and that led to these students getting upset and some parents getting upset. And then, of course, the American Civil Liberties Union and the Freedom From Religion Foundation, which is an atheist group, weighed in. And these people were saying there should never be any religion in the public schools, you know, things like that. And that's not really the case. In fact, there's a uh, there's a law called the Equal Access Act. It was passed in 1984, and it basically said that if you allow any kind of extracurricular kind of group uh, in the school during some period of time, whether it's after school or during a non-instructional time, then you have to allow uh, groups that, to come in that are religious. So if they're, if they're secular groups that are allowed, then you have to allow religious groups on the same basis. And that's provided that they're student-sponsored, that they're voluntary, and they occur during a non-instructional time during the day. So that's really what was going on here, but it looks like there was just a misunderstanding by this couple of teachers here. All right. I think that's really, um, really helpful. Thank you so much for not only, you know, just clearly walking us through it, but doing so in a way that's not hysterical. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, right. I mean, we don't have to have every single one of these conversations as if, you know, the future of Western democracy and Christianity itself rests upon it. Like, right. We can, we can have a conversation that says, it seems like there was a misunderstanding. Yeah, and you know, in, in some previous days, perhaps, that would have been the end of it. There would not have been any AP News report or anything about this. It would have been cleared up with these teachers, and students would have said, oh, okay, fine, you know, and just going on with it. But everything tends to get heated up nowadays, and there's a lot of other outside actors that um, have an interest in what goes on in the schools. And so that's why you see these kind of things kind of elevated to this level. Mm-hmm. All right, I want um, I want you to give us an update when we come back about sweet cakes because sweet cakes round two sounds like a delicious opportunity, but that's not necessarily what's going on. So we're going to talk about sweet cakes with Steve West up next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen. It's like the Continuing our conversation with Steve West. He's an attorney. He's also the editor of the Liberties Roundup for World Magazine. You can find what we're discussing today at WNG, that's worldnewsgroup.org. All right, remind us, Steve, who or what is Sweet Cakes, and what does it mean that we're getting round two? Okay, well, Sweet Cakes is an Oregon bakery run by a husband and wife team, Aaron and Melissa Klein. Now, this may sound similar to the case involving Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado that you know went up to the Supreme Court and came back, and there's still some ongoing litigation about his bakery. But it's the same kind of situation. 
here the clients are, are Christians. They didn't feel like they could, uh, under their beliefs, design a cake, not sell a cake, but design a cake for a same-sex wedding involving two women. And the two women ended up suing the clients and taking it through the Oregon courts and losing. Well, they lost. Uh, the sweet cakes lost. And then they took it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court uh, kicked it back to the Oregon and said, hey, take another look at this in light of Jack Phillips' case, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Take another look at it and see if there was actually uh, some invidious kind of discrimination here against the clients. So they sent it back. And what we get two years later after they sent it back, uh, we get a decision that says basically, no, we we think we did the right thing. We don't think there was any discrimination here. They they broke the law, and but we're going to send it back down to the agency that considered it at the state level to reconsider the fine because in this case, unlike the Jack Phillips case, it actually went through and they actually fined them one hundred and thirty five thousand mm. dollars, which actually ended up bankrupting the clients and putting them out of business. Unlike Jack Phillips. So this is where they stand. They're supposed to go back and have that fine reconsidered uh, by the state agency. This is the same state agency that was very biased to them in the first place. And then, you know, go back through the court system if they challenge that. So it's a long battle, uh, one that may end up at the Supreme Court as well. But, you know, they may get some help. Uh, Go ahead. Go, Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, okay. There may get some help here. There's a uh, there's a case pending with the Supreme Court involving a woman named Lori Smith, and Lori Smith was a uh, was a Colorado photographer, a wedding photographer, and she declined to take uh, to do photos for same sex weddings. And same kind of thing happened to her that happened to Jack Phillips, and she lost. And it's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is considering, perhaps even today, as they meet. Uh, for a conference today to decide whether or not to take this case. And it could be the case that really uh, helps um, helps resolve many of these issues regarding wedding-related uh, industries uh, like photographers, videographers, bakers, um, anybody who's involved with weddings. So it could be a case, it's certainly something that listeners can pray about, that this, the court will take this case and resolve some of these issues that occur in this context. Steve, I want um, I want you to help us understand, and this goes back to you know a schools conversation and a public schools conversation. Um, so you know I think we understand what you what you helped um, walk us through in terms of events and activities. There are also these affinity groups that are related to. Um, public schools. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on with student-based affinity groups um, and and this as a part of the ongoing conversation across the country at the intersection of race and, um, yeah, I mean, and education. I think that's where I would say this line is being drawn. Yes, this this case that I'm going to mention now really... um, has to do with critical race theory, that sort of idea. It's a race-based kind of idea that has become prevalent in the public school system. Uh, And we talk a lot, they talk a lot about not race in terms of being colorblind, uh, be treating everybody fairly, which certainly everyone believes in, and and it's certainly a Christian belief. But this is a, they talk about the concept of equity. And so they want to, um, 
elevate, I guess, some of the groups that have um, been minority groups over time. And so one of those things they do is uh, promote these student-based affinity groups. So if you're black, you are in this, you can be in this affinity group. Or if you're Asian American, for example, you can be in an affinity group. Or if you're, you're um, transgender, you can be in an affinity group. These are groups that are regarded as oppressed. And then the, the majority, any majority white groups are regarded as the oppressors. And that's in some of the materials that the schools are using. That's what occurs. And so in this Massachusetts school that uh, I featured in an article this past week, uh, this school was using these affinity groups and basically telling, you know, if you're a white student, you can't come to this group. This is just for black students. And so it tends to have a divisive kind of effect. Parents became upset, many parents, and a parent-based organization called Parents Defending Education sued the school. And they ended up settling the case. Uh, part of the settlement is that they can still have these affinity groups, but they have to make clear every time they do an invitation for these that, Everyone is welcome to come to these groups. You know, in other words, they can't exclude people, which is what some of these um, some of these groups were doing. They were excluding students from them. So, you know, but it, it goes to a larger issue, which is how do you deal with race uh, issues in the public schools? And typically, you know, we would say, well, we, we teach that uh, people are to be treated equal, equally under the Constitution, and for Christians, it's equally because. People are made in God's image, and that's true of everyone. And so, everyone should have a certain has a certain dignity and should be treated equally. Um, but this kind of approach tends to be divisive uh, in the schools, and it surely has upset many, many people. Not just in Massachusetts, but all over the country, where they have this kind of um, have these kind of programs going on. All right. In a couple of minutes that we have left, Steve, I want you to help us understand what is happening in relationship to people who have um, who are federal employees of one variety or another, including the military, who have applied for a religious exemption against uh, the the COVID-19 vaccine. In most cases, those were declined, but those people have ended up on lists. There are these there are now these lists, these databases of individuals who applied for religious exemptions. Um, and those lists are being kept by the federal government. And there are a number of people asking questions about that. And so can you help us know or help us understand sort of where that is in terms of the, the conversations in Washington? Right. This came to light back in January. Um, one small agency in the District of Columbia published a rule which indicated it looked like a, just a housekeeping rule where they are going to uh, track some information. But it has to do with anyone who claims a religious exemption. So under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, um, which applies to the federal government, federal government employees, if you have a uh, religious – if you ask for a religious exemption from a workplace requirement, in this case, m- many of them were – uh, requirements that you obtain the vaccine, uh, have the vaccine then uh, for COVID-19, then you have a right to ask for a religious exemption. And if it's not an undue hardship to the employer, the employer has to grant a reasonable accommodation. So typically, these requests would be made, the information would be gathered, they'd make a decision. Uh, maybe there'd be an appeal of that if it was, if it was unsuccessful You know, in, in the agency, they'd make an appeal of that. But then after that, this information did not need to be retained. The exemption was either granted or not granted, and that was the end of it. But this this came to light that a lot of federal agencies, in fact, upwards of about 55 now, have, um, have sent out these rules or issued these rules that indicate that they're going to be collecting this personal information 
uh, from people who claim religious exemptions. And they're asking for more information than simply uh, that you have a religious belief. They're asking you to explain that, um, explain what um, religion you're affiliated with, who you are, uh, give your you know name, date of birth, social security number, all of the identifying, personal identifying information. And then they're collecting this. And it's unclear what the purpose of this is, because when you look for the justification of it in any of these rules, uh, they don't really give much of a justification other than we need to collect this information because we need to collect it. It's kind of circuitous what they're saying about it. So one one uh, representative, Representative Ralph Norman, who's a Republican from South Carolina, uh, introduced late in January the Religious Freedom Over Mandates Act, which would prohibit federal funds from being used to establish any kind of list like this for uh, religious exemptions from the federal COVID-19 vaccine requirement. So that gets at part of the problem, but I think it goes broader than that uh, in the terms they're collecting information that doesn't just re- relate to the vaccine, it relates to any kind of religious exemption that federal employees or contractors, consultants uh, are, uh, are, are asking for in this situation. I like uh, the picture that you chose of Representative Ralph Norman, Republican from South Carolina. You guys want to see uh, Ralph's picture? Go to um, Steve West Post at WNG.org. The article you're looking for is a list of religious objectors. Biden administration collection of religious exemption info falls under scrutiny. Um, I um, I like his tie. I'm just going to say that's a good... He, he looks like a trustworthy fellow. I like him. All right, Steve, as always, thank you so much for helping us understand what in the world is going on uh, at the intersection of religious liberty and our lives uh, as American citizens. So thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. It's a privilege to help. Wow. Thank you. All right. So we are going to take a very brief pause to hear upwards from Max Lucado. And then when we reconvene, Dan DeWitt will be here with our Worldview Reader. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, when you think about theology, does that... Like, are you excited about that or does that, are you like glazed over and you're like, oh, that sounds like that's going to be really big words that I don't understand and concepts that I'm not too sure about. Theology is really just the way we think and talk about and make a study of the things of God. And so everyone has a theology. You have one. I have one. Everyone has one. Even people who would deny God have they have a theology i mean they are operating out of a view of god they have made a study uh they have given thought to or maybe been thoughtless about but regardless of how much you think about it you you have a theology you actually are a theologian have you thought about that lately so when we talk about cultivating the mind of christ on the matters of the day that's what we're talking about we're talking about theology we're talking about how we apply the things that we know about God from the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how we actually apply all of that to our relationships, the challenges that we face during the day, our work, the choices that we make about our money and what we eat. I mean, on and on and on. How, I mean, how we spend our quote unquote free time, which by the way, isn't free and is all measured out. And that's a theological statement as well. 
When you think about the past and how you think about it, when you think about the present and how you think about it, when you think about the future and how you think about it, you're actually having theological thoughts. If you think you're going to heaven when you die, that's a theological thought. Um, And whether or not that's based in reality is ultimately dependent on what is real in terms of the things of God. So Dan DeWitt and I are going to talk about theology and what it means to translate our theology into common language so that regular people like you and me can actually understand the things of God. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We are talking with Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. You can find him at theolatte.com. That's like God and coffee, theolatte.com. And we're looking at the Worldview Reader. Dan, welcome back. It is good to be back, Carmen. How are you doing? I am I am well. I am well. It's so good to talk with you today. I love this conversation about translating our theology into the common language. Uh, I have traditionally talked about this um, as putting the hay down where the goats can get it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so important. And of course, you know, C.S. Lewis said, argued that this should be a requirement for people who want to be ordained for ministry, that they can take some church, ancient church writing and um, put it into the common vernacular, into um, the language of, as Lewis described, even people who um, wouldn't have a higher degree, might not even have a high school degree, can you communicate to them? And if you can't, then your thoughts are probably confused, um, because it's, it's the um, ability to state something concisely that shows you really understand a concept. So the good thing about this is it's going to draw drive all of us back to study what we really believe, but that's only part of it, right? So um, translating theology involves both content, what we believe, but also context. So we have to study what we believe, but we also have to study the people that we want to reach. And in this way, I think that translating our beliefs, you know, into a way people can understand them reflects both love for God studying theology, and also love for neighbor, wanting to make it accessible to them. Yeah, there's a there's a theology and there's an anthropology, right? There's, mm-hmm. uh, there's a—I'm translating the theology for someone or to someone or to a specific context. Like, there is a someone for whom the theology must be translated. And I, I think that that is helpful always to keep in mind. If I'm translating the theology in a way that, that the person or group of people can't understand what I'm saying, I'm not doing a good job of translation. It's lost in translation, so to speak. Yeah, and I think there's probably a couple levels there, because we have to translate it first in a way that we understand it. And mm. I think sometimes we think that that is the end goal. Okay, like, now I get it. I could put in words I understand, and that's essential, but that doesn't mean someone else will understand it. And Lewis said what we have to do is, to quote Lewis, we must learn the language of our audience. And let me say at the outset, Lewis said, it is no use at all laying down Um, in advance, what the plain man does or does not understand. You have to find out by experience. 
And so this requires really immersing yourself in the world of the people you're wanting to communicate with. And so, great, you understand that you could put it in language you understand, but now you have to go a lot further than that and try and understand how are people talking about what matters to them? What are the how do they phrase those perennial questions, those questions that come up all the time? How is it being uniquely voiced by the people you're trying to reach? And Lewis said the only way you could do that is to immerse yourself um, it, with people, be surrounded by people. And that's important. If we, if we don't do that, there's only one part of our theology. The, the, the full task has not yet been completed, as Lewis said. So as I'm reading um, this post at theolatte.com on translating theology, in the middle of it, you're actually offering this list, um, which you offered recently uh, on the topic of translating theology. Can we just walk through this list? It starts with theology must be translated. But your second point is that orthodoxy is more than mere propositions. I think you better define orthodoxy. You better translate that word, um, and you better translate the word proposition. Yeah, so if you think about um, an orthodontist who's going to straighten your kid's teeth and charge you a lot of money, (laughs) it's orthodoxy similar in that it means just rightly ordered beliefs, to have them rightly lined up like an orthodontist would rightly line up your teeth. And so orthodoxy is to to do what we can to make sure that our beliefs line up with what the Bible says and historically how Christians have thought about that and tried to communicate that in you know each season of the life of the church. Christians have this task. A proposition is kind of like a, a sum it's just a statement. And so in this case, I mean it kind of like a summary statement of what we believe. So think about it this way: the Ten Commandments is a list of propositions right? It's a list of statements. And so we have God communicating in that way, do this, don't do that, um, etc. But orthodoxy, the Bible is more than just the Ten Commandments. And so what we get in the Bible is not a bullet-pointed list, um, but rather, point number three, it's one big beautiful story. And to be honest, I'm borrowing here from, I've been influenced by a theologian whose last name is Van Hooser, um, he'll often say that the Bible is not filled with disembodied propositions, like these bullet-pointed data points. Um, The Bible's this big, beautiful story, and so if all we're doing is teaching people summary statements, um, then we're missing the beauty of the biblical narrative, the biblical story. All right, point four on your list is creativity is not a substitute for orthodoxy. I think when we're talking about I think when we're talking about story and we're think and we're talking about um, you know things lining up correctly, this is a really important point. Yeah, and I kind of put it in there for some of the naysayers who I think hear conversations like this. So I, I just hosted a conference, and all the speakers at the conference are were artists. In this case, singers, songwriters, and I think sometimes theologians, and um, you know, I teach at a university on a theology faculty. I think sometimes the immediate um, kind of defense is, oh, you guys don't care about um, having rightly ordered beliefs. You just care primarily about this these feelings. And so I have a quote in this post from a guy named Roger Lloyd, who wrote a wonderful book years ago called Borderland. And he says that the Christian artist um, has to believe certain propositions or they couldn't be called a Christian. You have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You have to believe in any number of things. Um, so if you're a Christian artist, you care about truth. But you also care about, as an artist, delight. 
And so you're bound to both truth and delight and communicating things in a way that people will feel the impact and the weight of the story. As Tim Keller likes to say, that they'll hear this and think, I wish that were true. And so I wanted mm. to insert number four in to say, creativity is not a substitute for orthodoxy. And so that doesn't mean that the artist has to say everything the Bible says, but they certainly want to make sure that they don't contradict the Bible. All right. I'm reading from a list that Dan DeWitt has posted in a piece called Translating Theology, which you can find at theolatte.com. Um, and the list includes the theology must be translated. Orthodoxy is more than mere propositions. The Bible is one big, beautiful story. Creativity is not a substitute for orthodoxy. And then we arrive at number five. We must find ways around watchful dragons. What does yeah, this mean, want, Dan? I wanted to get dragons in here, right? You know, the, the, <laughs> the Tolkien Lewis in me wanted that to come out. But that's actually a phrase that goes back to Lewis. Lewis described watchful dragons. That was his way of describing these ready-made rational defenses to um, propositions, statements about Christianity. And we've heard them so much for people, especially in North America and the West, um, who've grown up around Christian influences, even if they didn't go to church, they hear it all the time in the culture, that we kind of have these ready-made statements for why we don't believe it. Just like if, you know, um, it, it used to be that long-distance companies would call you and try and sell you long-distance telemarketers back when we have, you know, landlines. And, you know, most people had a ready-made line that would be a way to dispel the telemarketer. Um, in the same way, Lewis said, we have to find a way to get past those rational defenses, and it's not going to be with another rational argument. And so for Lewis, he meant story and symbol. And I think the best story for me that illustrates this is Peter Hitchens, who was an atheist. His brother was a famous atheist, Christopher Hitchens. And he was converted, not through reading you know, an argument or listening to a sermon, but by looking at a painting. It was a painting depicting the judgment of God, and he was overcome with the sense that he too would one day stand before God. So we have to find ways to get people to feel the power of this Christian story. I'm reminded there of Second Corinthians uh, 10.5. We destroy arguments, and I think that when Paul is saying that, he doesn't just mean we destroy them through argumentation, but we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to or in, into obedience to Christ. Um, and so I think that there's something there for me as an individual believer. What does it mean to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ? Like, what does that mean? That's a, that's a word picture for sure. Um, you know, and, and even as, as I say that, and you remind me that there's these dragons out there, I recognize that there's an enemy and he's prowling mm -hmm. around all the time, seeking a way in to devour me. Like, right. I like those images and pictures of theological reality are powerful and they're true um, and right. they're help and they're helpful. Like they're very, very helpful. That's absolutely right. And that's where we usually James Sire was a Christian philosopher who talked about worldview. And he said that we could either um, describe our worldview in a list, a set of propositions, those statements, or as a story. And I think in our day and age, then most people are going to communicate it, not through—I mean, some people are, you know, the analytical, intellectual type, and they're going to give you kind of their bullet point list of what they believe. But I think most people, it's going to come out as a story. 
And James Sire, that same author who gave that insight, at the end of his life, the one of the last books he wrote was called Apologetics Beyond Reason. And what he was getting at is most of us don't make most of our decisions primarily for rational reasons. I mean, if we did that, we would eat far less fast food. You know, if all of our decisions were purely rational, the reality is we're far more than just our cognitive abilities, our brain. And so Sire at the end of his life was really trying to find ways to affect people and to show them the beauty of the story rather than just giving them arguments. All right. We've all um, heard about toxic masculinity. Our friend Bruce Ashford actually made a list of some toxic subspecies in the human kingdom. Dan DeWitt and I are going to talk about some of those toxic expressions of humanity next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right. I wish that every person was just sweetness and light all the time, but that's not how um, I have come to understand people in reality, nor the way God describes people throughout the course of all of human history. So Dan uh, DeWitt and I are going to continue our conversation. We're actually going to talk about a friend of ours, Bruce Ashford, and something he has written and posted at his website, bruceashford.net. And it's about toxic people. Um, What's Bruce getting at in this piece about uh, toxic people? Well, um, Bruce is just great, by the way. I love what he writes and what he has to say and just his transparency. He's such a helpful voice. Um, He's talking about here just making sure that we aren't—this is a part of a series, and he talked about how Jesus at times would would distance himself from people and not entrust himself to people, knowing what was in man. And so taking that kind of principle, um, Bruce is going through a number of kind of um, personality types— kind of vices more than just personality types and saying these are the kind of people to avoid. And he's using wildlife language and he's alliterated the entire thing for (laughs) us. So I don't even know how to pronounce all these words, the palavering, palavering peacock and the micromanaging malapert. Um, But it's really fascinating. And it's, it's helpful for us to say we need to draw boundaries. I think of that book boundaries that years ago I found so helpful that there are certain people that we can, we need to love them, and there are certain Christian, you know, ideas that we need to keep in mind as we distance ourselves from people. But on the same hand, I think Bruce is right. We need to be careful to whom we entrust ourselves. Mm-hmm. I, my experience of this um, is, you know, as diverse as the people I've encountered over the course of my life, and I, there are people who are just constantly. Um, their lives are a toss in in drama. And it's not yeah. actually that they're in more drama than any of the rest of us. It's just that they bring their drama to the forefront of every mm-hmm. moment and every day um, and everything. And that is exhausting. And those are not healthy relationships. And yeah, there are people who are just, you know, they're, they're malcontent. Um, and there are people who are um, buffle-headed bulls, as he talks about here. And yeah, there are people who are absolutely just pessimistic. The one on this list that stood out to me um, that I thought I might lift up and we could talk a little bit about um, is this circumambient corrector, this person who um, views themselves as the censor of everybody and everything else, like they're the constant corrector of everything. Yeah. 
And and these are what I would encourage people to do is read this list and ask the question first, in what ways am I guilty of these things? Oh, sure. and how can I be mm-hmm. more mindful? And but with that one, um, my wife gen- typically loves like everybody. It's really hard for my wife to like not be able to stand someone. For me, that's a bit easier. I'm like, you want my list? Here you go. Um, but for April, when my wife will say, you know, this is a person I just cannot be around. That's only happened like twice in our 20 plus years of marriage. And it's usually someone like this who's constantly going to be judgmental of anything, no matter what you say. You know, if you ask to borrow mar- a stick of margarine, they're going to scold you on, you know, how bad margarine can be, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think that there is a place to say if someone's constantly judging me and making me feel bad about myself and everything I want to do, then I need to avoid that person. And just to put this in a positive kind of way to think about it, people will generally feel about you the way you make them feel about themselves. And this kind of person constantly makes people feel bad about themselves. Yeah, I um I wanted there to be a person on this list who was like, you know, the arbiter of truth, but that was not there was no alliteration there. So that's probably why <laughs> Bruce doesn't come up with that. But I think that that person falls into this um circumambient which, you know, there you go. He's he's choosing really big fancy words here. Um We need to, corrector. Tell him to translate yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. No, totally. He needs to he needs to put this hay down where uh, goats like me can get it. Um, When you when you think about toxic relationships, I think that the term boundaries that you used is really a good one. Um, Mm -hmm. How in your own life, you know, over the course of time, because I'm sure that there are people who want more of you than you know, it's healthy to give. Can you just reflect on that for a moment? Yeah, that's such a good thing for us to keep in mind because often our we'll, we'll do that with others too. Like we would, we really are fascinated by a person and think. I, C.S. Lewis talks about this in the Four Loves. It's kind of a need love that we actually we're communicating love, but it's really more about our own need. And we certainly have to deal with that. Who people who might have expectations for us that we can't meet. And so I think in my own heart to be able to appreciate someone for who they are. And to not want to control them in a way that, I, hey, I think you're awesome. I want you to be my best friend. But just to appreciate what small gift of their time or words they may give you and to let that be enough. And um, also to realize, as it relates to others, that you could give a gift to them. You may not be able to give them everything they might need or want. Um, being a professor, often students will will want and need perhaps more than you can give them, given your other my other responsibilities. But to at least take those those things you can do and to try and encourage them and do it for the, the Lord's glory. And so I've found when students ask me to mentor them, um, I found that it's helpful for me to set real set out really clearly and early um, what I'm able and willing to do for them. So hopefully that helps them kind of regulate their expectations. And being able to say that, um, you know, it, early um, and establish those boundaries is really, really helpful. So people aren't, you know, led to expect more of us um, than they're actually ultimately going to get. And then we don't feel guilty about trying to create a boundary late 
uh, you know, it, it, or later in the relationship. So I just think that's really helpful. I know it's mm. hard for me. Um, and so I suspect it's hard for others as well. Dan, thank you so much as always um, for joining us, for your insights, for the thinking you're doing and for helping us think about the thinking we're doing. You guys can find Dan DeWitt at Cedarville University. You can also connect with him at theolatte.com where you will find this week's Worldview Reader. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. So I'm going to give you a uh, hashtag, uh, pray the news today. We've, we've been talking now for weeks and even months about the situation on the border of Russia and Ukraine. It is also the border of Belarus and Ukraine. It is the border of Ukraine with the Black Sea. Um, Ukraine and portions of it have been in active war with Russia for a number of years. And yesterday, uh, as what many people see as a pretext for war, um, artillery shells were aimed at a kindergarten three miles from the Russia or the Belarus Ukrainian border. A pontoon bridge was constructed over the river that separates Belarus from the Ukraine. Um, that pontoon bridge it can only be there for one purpose, and that is for military vehicles and and individuals of the Russian military to pass over the river, which would put them within easy striking dis- distance of eastern Ukraine. We've been talking about this now for a long time. The people of Ukraine recognize uh, what's happening. The rest of the world seems to recognize what's happening, but also seems to be doing the calculus on, well, just how much of Ukraine would it be okay with us if Russia took? So let's be praying for the people of Ukraine. And let's just recognize that they've been living under this threat for a very, very, very long time. So pray the news today. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.